Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we're here with Aisha Bascaro, and we're super excited to have you here today. Um, Aisha is the CEO of American Franchise Academy, and there's just so many things that we're going to get into today. Aisha, we would love to start off with a story. Can we talk about one of the clients that you worked with and, and one of the success stories and, and what kind of challenges you went through doing that during that process? Sure. So here at the American Franchise Academy, we focus on helping franchisees implement the management systems they need so that they can be successful with whatever franchise they invest in. Because most franchisees that get into franchising are excited about, you know, the idea of owning a Dairy Queen and McDonald's and Domino's, uh, you know, but they don't have the business acumen that is required. And they don't find that out until after they become franchisees. The franchisor was there with them in the opening. They give them the keys and they say, OK, well, have fun. You need anything? Give me a call. And then the questions start coming in. How do I hire people? How do I interview them? How I read a profit and loss statement? How do I control my cost? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what uh, you know we have been doing now for over six years. And um, we have had the opportunity of helping many franchisees. And one of the things that we identified early on is that we wanted to help franchisees go from a one-unit job, as we call it, into a multi-unit enterprise. Because when you only have one franchise, you literally have a job. Now it's your job. You have no boss but you. And you know, if that's okay with you, you have enough to, you know, to 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 substitute an average salary, I guess, and and be fine. But if you truly want time and financial freedom, you have to go into multi-unit cr- to create an enterprise. So that's what we have been doing for a long time. And uh, one of our clients, and, it, and this is a very typical story, they come to us when they probably, they want, they knew that they wanted to become a multi-unit franchisee, and they probably adventured into opening two and three units, quickly realized how overwhelming it was, because it's not the same thing to be in one, running one unit, being there every day, knowing everybody, everybody knows you, and that's what you are. But when you open two and three and you have to divide your time, divide the space, the distance, the personalities, the challenges, now it becomes overwhelming. And the more units that you open, the more chaotic it becomes. So this particular client reached out to me when they were at six units going out of their mind, knowing knowing how badly they wanted to grow, having the money to invest. But the fact that they had so many challenges in those particular ones, they just couldn't imagine, you know, increasing that problem. And so we just help them implement the systems, like I mentioned, document those policies and procedures, be able to show them on how to implement those across with their team members, document uh, all of them, and then little by little roll them out so that the people knew what to do without the this franchisee being there 24-7. And as he was able to delegate operations, eventually, you know, supported him in hiring a district manager, which now allowed them to delegate the overseeing of the units to this district manager, which, by the way, we also train. And now he focuses on growth and development. And today he has 17 units and looking for more. And so imagine, you know, it's not just double, triple, quadruple, you know, profits. And, you know, and now he has a true, true enterprise and looking for other opportunities. And so that's kind of what we do. Very proud of it. And we do it over and over again. And um, like I mentioned uh, earlier, when we were talking before we started recording, our mission truly is to help protect the American dream of business ownership through franchising. There are many ways that you can accomplish the American dream. Obviously, I'm passionate about franchising and uh, I know how it can work and I know I can help people be successful. And so this is this is my way to make a difference. So let's talk. Let's dive into that case study a little bit deeper. So they went from two or three units completely struggling to 17 units. What I mean, you mentioned documenting systems and processes. Is that literally the only difference or what were the other things that needed to happen? I mean, obviously, the development of leadership. Because what happened is they, he actually had five units at the time and did have one person that was a semi-district uh, manager. Really, their position that they were running was being a super GM is what we call. Um, there is very little training for district managers in the industry. 
in the country, in the world, actually, because there's not very many of them. And so because of that, they just simply promote people that were unit managers, say, you're really good at managing a unit, you control your costs, you control your team. Hey, well, how about you managing multiple? And what happens is instead of really taking over the position of being a, a, a supervisor of the units, a district manager, district, well, we actually call it a multi-unit leader, they just become a super GM. So what they end up doing is instead of, you know, supervising and inspiring people to do the job, they actually end up doing the job of three, four or five people. And it becomes a burnout, a disaster, doesn't work, you know, work over hours. And it's just not. But that is a story of most district managers in the United States because they never had professional proper training on what that role truly is, which is completely different from being a district manager. And so from being a unit manager, sorry. Uh, and so one of the things that we did was develop that, you know, that super GM into a true district manager. And th- with her help, uh, we were able to then work together in developing and documenting all the procedures, all the standard procedures. You know, when you buy a franchise, you get all the standard procedures, uh, SOPs, standard operating procedures for a brand. How do you do a burger? How do you put it in a box? How do you put it in a bag? How do you charge a customer? Literally there's SOPs for every single thing that has to do with the brand. Then you have to create the same the same procedures and processes, document them for everything that has to do with the management. From the moment of how do you interview people? How do you then offer them a job? How do you then onboard them? How do you then train them? Like literally step-by-step procedures. Because once you document that, which a lot of franchisors do not provide, most of them do not provide because of a liability situation that's going on in the franchise world. Then, then a lot of franchises just do it by instinct. But when you grow, you cannot run by instinct multiple units. You have to be able to take what's in your head and in your heart into paper, train a manager, document it, train a manager. And now, now you have the documentation to train the next manager and the next manager without you necessarily being there because now they can use that training to learn, but also to then refer, right? It's a reference manual too. And so, and so the first thing was start working with the district manager in developing their leadership skills and having them promote themselves into being a uh, supervisor, a multi-unit leader, and then start documenting the information and training the people. And so it was really a combination of, of everything. And then obviously we got into metrics, teach people about financials because they didn't know anything about that. And once people understand the financials, then whatever they do every day makes sense. You know, because if you don't know that 1% could be $6,500 a year of lost revenue or lost profit, now they realize, oh, wow, I better make sure that I don't burn burger patties because they now they can quantify. So, I mean, it's a lot of things that go into into changing, you know, or turning around a, a franchise organization like that. And, the, you know, and the great thing about it is that the franchisee was committed to learn. He was committed to make the investment for his people and, and implement and took the time to do that. And we did it little by little. And because of that, he set the base, uh, the base information and the basis for him to be able to focus on what he was really good at, which was negotiating locations, finding the development opportunities and growing while his team was running operations in a consistent way. And so it's a lot that went into it, you know, so that's kind of like in a little short story there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I would love to dive a little bit deeper just to get some clarity for people that might not have operated in this type of environment before. So you said this person was trying to play the role of super GM. So my understanding of what a super GM is for you is they were trying to run four or five stores by themselves, correct? Pretty, pretty much. There were... Instead of overseeing and inspiring people to do a, a good job with the brand and business systems, they themselves were doing the inventory for all the units. They were doing the scheduling for the all the units. They were doing all the product order for all the units. They were actually running around shifting products here and there for all the units. They were dealing with all the customer complaints. They were dealing with all the employee issues. Now, these are the things that the unit manager should be running in their store, but when somebody gets promoted without knowing what their role is, they just default to what's natural to them, which is doing rather than inspiring. You know, and so that is the uh, the what what I what we call the G, super GM versus a district manager. Mm-hmm. Correctly, okay, so that makes a lot of sense. So, 
the district manager then, like how many stores do you think is reasonable for a district manager to run? Um, and obviously the district manager's differentiation is they should be delegating to some other GM essentially. So say they're running four stores, they have four GMs, that's the, who they're communicating with and that should be it. Am I following you correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So how many units a district manager should have really depends on what franchise it is, the business model, the distances between the units, the situation in each of the units. Because if you have a simple model franchise that uh, doesn't have a lot of team members, you know, let's say 10, 12 per unit, uh, then you can have more units, especially if they are within, you know, uh, 30, 45 minutes of each other. But if you have a, a business model that is, you know, larger, requires 45 employees, they might be making $2.5 million a year, and they are an hour and a half from each other, then, of course, you, you cannot have as many units for a, for a district manager because then they cannot manage it well. And so even within the same brand, how many units can a district manager have depends on all these things. Some, you know, in some uh, regions uh, in this brand, uh, the units might be closed because of the population density. They can have more stores. In other areas, the population density is smaller, and therefore the, the stores are further apart, so a district manager can actually oversee less because you have to include dry time in that. And, and if you don't take care of the district manager's quality of life, eventually they'll leave, right? So you have to take all those things into consideration. And even within stores that are, let's say, equal distance, if one district has uh, stores that have a lot of issues because of turnover, prior management, or poor poor decision-making in the past. It's a lot of cleanup, a turnaround to be done. Then you're better off giving that district manager less stores so that they can really focus uh, you know, their work and turning those around before you give them more units. So the answer really is always depends because you know my clients always ask me how many units should I give my district manager then I had to ask them you know 54 questions before I can give him a number uh, and so that's a great question that you asked there and yeah the the job of the district manager is to work directly with the unit manager and kind of sort of also indirectly a little bit more with the assistant managers because you really have to respect the hierarchy you know, because otherwise, if you don't, then the assistant managers will then look up to the district manager and be calling and looking at him or her all the time rather than their unit manager who is ultimately responsible for the unit. And so abilities to lead people is crucial at the district manager. I mean, really at any role of leadership, but as a district manager, it's even higher because you don't see them very often. And so in the times that you do see them once or twice a week, maybe, then you have to be able to be the best possible leader that they need you to be. And that in, in our in our wall of franchising and retail, uh, you have to uh, respect the, the hierarchy. And so the, the, the district manager's focus should be more of leading, coaching, and inspiring the unit manager and then supporting and training the assistant managers if the, if the unit manager wants them to and then building relationships with the rest of the team building culture with the rest of the team, building a positive environment with the rest of the team so that they feel that they are supported, cared for, a positive culture, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really what their role is with the rest of the team, while the direct um, relationship of the business is between them and the unit manager, who is the king and queen of their castle. And you got to respect them as such, right? And so being able to maneuver all this, understand all this requires specific skills that a lot of times the district managers don't even have because they were used to being a unit manager. And so that's where the challenge comes in and where we, the American Vaches Academy, comes in because we do have a, a, a very uh, robust, uh, what I would call best in class training for district managers to cover all of these skills. Yeah. So the question that this leads me to is essentially you've developed the ability through it sounds like a couple decades of experience in working with franchises to see the problems, understand whether it's a leadership problem, understand if it's a system problem. So my curiosity is now that you feel comfortable fixing franchises, what's leading you to being more and creating a coaching business to do that versus like just going in and buying franchises and making them wildly profitable? Mm. You know, it's a great question. A lot of times I get asked, why are you not a franchisee, Aisha? You know, and the reality is that my, my entire career, I spent half my time 
in operations. I actually ran operations. I grew up in operations in franchising. I started as a pizza delivery person. I became an assistant manager, a manager, a district manager. I became a trainer. I went to international and lived in 14 countries, helping master franchisees open brand new franchises of Domino's Pizza in Spain, in Dominican Republic, in Peru, in Brazil, you know, um, and it was just a, a long career of, of, uh, of success, of fun, of travel, you know, uh, running operations, whether it was temporarily on behalf of the, of the franchisor, going to master franchises organizations and helping the master franchisee on areas. Or at times, I actually, for three years, I ran the master franchise for Domino's Pizza and Dairy Queen in the Bahamas on behalf of the master franchisees there. Having a great time, you know, making, uh, you know, good money, obviously. And the reality is that I spent 25 years at, for Domino's Pizza. I went for Popeye's. I run the company, company restaurants for a year. For two years, I was in charge of standards and operating procedures, launches, special projects. And the last two years, I was in charge of training operations for 26 countries around the world. You will see me get on a plane, leave for two weeks to Japan, to South Korea, to Singapore, to Europe, South America. So I was just enthralled in my career, having a great time, uh, experiencing amazing things in my life. And by the time I decided to take a sabbatical, because I, I, I did get married along the way, and I did have kids too, by the way, <laughs> uh, I decided to take a sabbatical to to see my kids into high school. And at that point, I was in a pivot moment in my career where I was thinking, should I go into franchising and now apply all this knowledge that I have? Now that I experienced all of these things, you know, I think it, it would be an amazing thing. And, uh, and what happened was I started getting phone calls from franchisees that I know in my career, knowing that I was not working anywhere and I don't even know how they found out. And even my prior brands calling me and asking me to do special projects because of, you know, a certain relationship that I built with certain master franchisees around the world. And then I realized, you know, the great need that there was for that. And so I had to decide, do I go into franchising or do I start helping these people? Because one of the secrets of the success that I had in my career was the fact that while I was experiencing all this knowledge and information, I was also always teaching everybody that was willing to listen everything that I knew. I've just been a natural teacher. And I think that's been part of the reason I've been successful in my career because I'm teaching everybody anything that wants to that wants to learn. And um, I, then I had this one franchisee on one of the brands that I, uh, that I worked at that actually hired me. He said, hey, would you would you do a consulting job for me? And, and I'm like, I don't even know what that looks like. <laughs> I never consulted anybody on anything. Uh, and um, I didn't even know how to charge or nothing, right? But I just wanted to help him because I could hear the voice of desperation he had, you know, how he had put so much money into a business that he was really, truly hoping was going to be his retirement key. And he was seeing things going down the drain rather than getting to the bank. And so I started helping him, him and his son, who was a district manager and he was the investor. And, um, and I realized, you know what, the reason I could help them was because I ran operations. I ran company units, um, you know, for a long time. And we, as, as company operators, directors, you know, supervisors, we learn all the management side because the franchisors develop those. They just cannot teach franchisees those systems because of liability. So I was able to teach all the things that I learned in all these great brands um, so that they knew how to do the management side. And I realized that I loved it. And I had to decide, do I want to get into franchising and... Um, pay all the royalties on a, on a business that I know I could create from scratch or just teach people how to do it and maybe explore creating my own fun brand. And so I, I, I chose pl uh, plan B. And so since then, little by little, I grown from consulting and I decided that I didn't want to do consulting anymore because in my eyes, consulting is me go do for you. And then when I leave, you don't know what to do. And I didn't like that. So instead, I want to teach I want to teach people how to fish. That's what we do. We teach people how to fish. Not We don't give them fish. And, and so I teach them how to do it so that they can do it on their own. And along the way, I had my little pet project on my own little brand. 
Very and cool. That's what I do. So I love what you're doing. Very cool. I mean, and, and your passion definitely, you know, it comes out from the screen. So, I mean, I have a question for you. Um, so people purchasing a franchise, um, you're talking like the franchise or doesn't typically give you all the systems and data on how to run operations and things of that nature. But obviously most franchises have corporate um, stores as well. So do you think it would be wise for somebody looking to purchase a franchise to maybe go check out a corporate store, maybe go work there for a little bit and look at their systems before buying one? Or or what do you think is the right approach there? You know what? Absolutely. If the, the thing is, though, that a lot of these franchisees that have the money, they're not willing to spend a year or so, six months a year, you know, working for someone else. Will that be the best pass? Absolutely. And the reason, so, so that to be clear, franchisors do provide all of the processes and systems, manuals, trainings to duplicate operations, how to make the product, how to sell the product, and how to market the product. They do not give them guidance on how to manage the business. Two very different things, right? And so, and so, and the reason for they don't do that is not because they don't want to, is because if they do, there's this employer liability situation that's happening in within the franchise world. And, and what happens is that if they get into the non-brand elements of the business, then they're liable on whatever the franchisee does with whatever else they teach. So they're liable for the product, they're liable for the brand, they're liable for the service. And so they spend all the time and resources making sure that those are tight, which is a great service for anybody that wants to be an entrepreneur because the amount of skills required to come up with a product, recipes, image, equipment, suppliers, I mean, it's enormous. I mean, it is really hard for somebody to come up with that. So they provide an amazing service. They just cannot get into the management side for costs and for liability issues. And so, yes, anybody that wants to explore franchising should absolutely do whatever they can to learn how to manage a small business, whether they go run somebody's unit, you know, and become a manager, assistant manager, manager, whether it's a franchise restaurant or a franchise or it doesn't matter. It's a business. As long as whoever is the leader empowers you and gives you the ability to have vision into the business. Some franchises does do that and some franchises do not do that. Some corporate corporate units do it and some corporate units do not do it. Domino's Pizza literally taped the profit and loss statement on the, on the office door. <laughs> I was a pizza delivery driver and I could see the P&L for the unit every month, marked up with notes from the district manager. And so... And so, yeah, you should you should know that. And the thing is that a lot of people that invest in franchising do not know this because it's 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 a secret. You know, it is a it's a secret or the big confusion that I call it that I'm gonna I am on a mission to to change. Uh, that you think you're gonna get everything you need to be successful as a franchisee when you buy a franchise, and that's not the case. And so that's why people do not think that they need to get that information. I will tell you that I only get one out of every twenty clients are people that come to us to go through our programs before they buy a franchise. Everybody else come in once they're in and they realized, you know, the doo-doo that they into it, you know, because they did not know that they were not going to get all those things. But yeah, if you want to become a franchisee, please go run franchise and small business even because management systems are management systems or principles, whether you are a franchise or an independent business, doesn't matter. But if you're going to do it, do it in a place where people, the leaders, the owners are going to give you a visibility into the business management side so that you can prepare yourself to become an entrepreneur. So the franchises would have, the franchisors would have the liability if they recommended management procedures, which obviously creates a, a vacancy for you to fill. Exactly. If the franchisor was to tell the franchisee how to interview and hire an employee and that employee assaults another employee, now not only is the franchisee liable, but then they will make the franchisor liable. And so that's what franchisors said. No, we cannot control who, how you hire and it would teach you then that would. Yeah. So that, that's why they can't do it. Yeah. And that makes an opening for what we do, which, which is, yeah, which is what we do. So, so the question that I have, and, and excuse me for my ignorance, essentially 
would you then be taking on the liability that the franchise or had because now you're recommending the hiring practices or how, how do you shield yourself from liability? Great. Well, because we are a school We're you know, it's like we're school. We're teaching you how to do it. Now, whether you do it the way we tell you to do it or not, it's completely up to you. When you are a franchisee, franchisor, there's a, there is an agreement. There is a um, requirement standards procedures uh, that, that the franchisee is uh, mandated to follow. When it, when it comes to a school, you get to learn the information. How you apply the information is completely up to you. I don't hold you accountable to how you do it while the franchisor. Now, the thing is this, is that the franchisor does hold the franchisee accountable on how do they do every single product, service, process that could up, could change the, the, the brand. And while hiring does not directly apply, you know how lawyers are. They have a way of saying, well, it's in the agreement. Or if you teach them, that means that they're required to do it. Uh, but, you know, it's like saying that Harvard will be liable for anything their lawyers do because they taught them. And that's not the case. We are education. We're an edu- education institution. So we teach you how to do it, you know, in a different ways. And then whether you do it that way or not, that's up to you when we're not mandating anything. Absolutely. So so you get franchisees from one store to multiple store multiple stores right so you're you're talking about creating enterprises so i have a very curious culture question because i've come from this world before um so i've worked in roughly 5 restaurants right and the culture for every single one of them was wildly different so i'm curious like is it even possible to have a unique culture across multiple stores because i kind of doubt that um and and number 2 to the same question is how do you control the culture if each restaurant is going to be kind of unique no matter what? Mm, very good question. The answer to, to that is absolutely. If you proactively as a business owner decide that you are going to create the culture, then you have the ability to do so. It is hard. It is not easy. But if, if you start doing it even from the very first unit and you know define what that's going to look like, and it all starts with creating your charter your mission, your vision, and your values. And that's really the beginning of it. And I will tell you that uh, Domino's Pizza Cheer, who are we? Domino's Pizza, what are we? Number one, what do we want? Sell more pizzas, have more fun. I left them in 2007 and I still know the cheer. Get me in a pizza store and I will be able to say, who are we? And I will tell you the team will answer. It is. And, and I, when I left, they had 8,000 stores across the world. And you could do that in just about any store in the world. So it is possible, but the leader of the organization has to decide that they're going to own the culture of the organization. And like I said, it has to start with creating a charter of your mission, your vision and values. You have to be able to not only know it, believe it, live it every day, communicate it, expect it and take nothing but that, you know, and if you do that and it is a, and if it is a charter that involves the team, that includes them. One of my favorite missions is the one from Dairy Queen that says to create our mission is to create positive memories for those that touch the queue. That doesn't mean just the customers. That doesn't mean just the vendors. That means the employees too. So every day you ask the people, did you have a positive memory today? Did we do a good job at making sure that you have positive memories today, including the employees? And the answer is yes, or the answer is no, then you know what to do next. And so it is possible. I've seen it. I've seen it. I lived it, you know, in my life. And But the owner needs to, first of all, understand the importance of it, then be able to have the abilities and the skills to then communicate it and train it and live it and expect it from everybody. And it is very hard, but what you can get in return is amazing. Sometimes if you just had the right culture, you had to do very little after that to, to be successful because the people will push for you, you know, instead of you pulling them to do what you want them to do. If you have the right culture, they're going to push to make it happen for you and for the team. But, you know, but so it is possible. And because of, because of what it takes to make it happen is why so few people do it. And the people that, and many people don't even know how to do it. And so 
So I don't know that answers your question. Everyone who listens to our show knows Matt and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times you have watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did, but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. And the results prove this. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secret that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is why we have opened up a few one-on-one coaching slots with Freedom Chasers Coaching, where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are and where you want to go, and most importantly, how you want to get there. Where you can get a plan to financial freedom that is completely customized to fit who you are, where you want to go, and how you want to get there. The benefit of working with Matt and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 successful people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten the inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We are able to work with you to pick the strategy that will fit the best and then help you create the custom plan and steps to take you quickly into financial freedom. The fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us, and let's get you on a straight-line path to freedom. That's a little bit, but I'm going to play a little bit devil's advocate here and go a little bit deeper, right? So, I mean, uh, yes, I mean, having a defined cultural from a broad strokes is obviously very paramount and important, Um, but just from my own experience, um, every restaurant feels like an island, right? Like even if there's a loose connection, right? So, I mean, there might be a district manager that's in charge of five stores or whatever, but every one of those stores is going to feel unique and different because every one of those stores has a different leader. So even if say the McDonald's example, QSCMV, quality service and whatever value, I don't remember them all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, they have those defined things and everything, um, And everybody is led by a district manager, right? But every store is still going to feel very unique. Even if you have a pointed culture, I mean, there's still going to be, it's, it's going to feel very different going from one store to the other one, no matter what is my thought, but I might be wrong there. Like I'm saying, I'm open to the idea that I'm wrong, but I mean, for me, like it's, it's, I'm cautious even considering that idea. No, the reality is that, yes, the unit manager does drive the culture in the organization. And so the job of the owner, district manager, the leaders of the organization is to have each of the managers buy into the culture of the organization. Now, it's still going to have a different feel for sure, because there are managers and leaders that are introverts. There are others that are extroverts. There are some that, you know, that are more um, logic and other ones that are more impulsive. So yeah, would it, would it feel different? Absolutely. However, as long as what's important, still important, there is a common thread, like as you mentioned it, uh, between them. And that's really what's important because you don't want everybody to become robots and just become the same personality because that would just, first of all, it would, wouldn't hop, it wouldn't happen. It wouldn't work. But what's important is that as long as the leader of the organization of the unit, regardless of who the personality is and the preferences and whatever, as long as they buy into the overall culture of the organization, then you're still going to have a positive, healthy environment for the team members. And yes, it will feel different, right? Mary's a little bit more mother-like and, you know, and Susan, you know, she might be more strict, you know, but as overall, if they are still believing in the charter and the mission and the vision of the company, they still have the common thread. But you're right. Every unit will have a different feel because every leader is different. And that's just, you know, mom and dad are different, you know, and, you know, and that's just the reality of it. And it's okay. I think that having that diversity and that, you know, differences is great as long as everybody is swimming in the right direction. Mm-hmm. So you said essentially they're not all going to be the same, but they, they're, they're vying for that sense. Like, would you say that's the core values is that the daily processes? Obviously, the daily processes make the ship run more efficiently. But what defines culture, in your opinion? Is it 
values or, or what defines it? Yeah, it's definitely values. And, and you know, what do the what does the company focuses on? You know, one of the things that we talk a lot about is building, a, creating a culture of metrics. You know, we want to be able to, to see where we are, where we're going, because in the absence of you driving what's happening, the unit manager is going to take over and their personality or their, they're going to decide what's, you know, what's the priority. But if you clearly define what the priorities are through metrics, through those values, through, you know, daily, weekly conversations, you know, then, then that's what driving that tells people what's important. And as long as people know what's important and if they don't, what are the consequences if they don't focus on what's important, then people will kind of stay in that, you know, in that narrow, in the narrow way. And so one of the things that, you know, we, we highly, um, uh, teach our clients on is having a dashboard with specific metrics. of what are the key indicators of the organization? Give them, you know, the, those values and a specific, what are the, what are the things that are expected and, uh, and expected and acceptable and if they're not, they to be addressed immediately. And as you do that, if you keep people busy and working and focusing one direction, then they won't have the opportunity to create their own, you know, set of of, uh, of guidance and m- misdirect people. And so, something that's going to be very important is if you set the tone and if you set what the priorities are, people will follow that. Otherwise, they're going to make it up. And so, in the absence of leadership, somebody else will be a leader. And so, and so that's kind of like the, the thing that you have to drive it. So it's not just about the list of values and living them and expecting them, but also then what's, in, you know, what else is important? What are we here for? What is the purpose that we're here to accomplish every single day? And here is where the metrics know. And as, as, as much as you can share those metrics, those numbers with everybody, the better it is because it can even be fun. I mean, especially nowadays, the kids that are playing games all the time, if these games didn't have a score or points or a, a goal, they wouldn't want to play it because then what's the point, right? And so the same thing with business. Why not share those, you know, what what is the game? How do you get the points? How do you win the game? And then celebrate and have fun just like you do when you have, you know, games. And so, and that's one of the things that we call gamification of business. If you do that, then that you're creating a culture of metrics, you're creating a culture of games, of goals, of accomplishment. And then, of course, when you choose your your, your values, of course, respect, achievement, excellence, uh, support, you know, so forth, so on. Then that's how you create the culture. And like I said, it's still it's hard work. But if you really understand how important it is and you work on it hard, then the it comes back to you tenfold. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that answer. So I got a very specific question for you. Um, so obviously, um, anybody that is a franchisee could choose to run their store any way they choose. Um, as a former corporate employee of McDonald's, I remember having regular, regular, very regular disagreements with my area supervisor based on labor projections and and what I needed in order to have a well-staffed store and things of that nature. Um, so curious. Um, what is your thought on that? Do you lean towards profitability or do you lean towards service? Because I lean towards service. <laughs> yeah, great question. So one of the things that we do with our clients is because, by the way, franchisors nowadays do not really share much about how to manage labor. A lot of them just tell them, you know, if there's a, this document called the FDD, the Franchise Disclosure Document, which is a generic document that the franchise source has to provide with the generic numbers of what franchises can expect, financially speaking, from their franchise. And sometimes they have labor and product costs, and sometimes they don't. And there really is very little guidance on that. Sometimes, you know, there's a number thrown out there. Oh, it should be 25%, 26%. So most of the people, at least in the, you know, since we've been doing this with dozens and dozens of brands, we have learned that they don't really get exact guidance as to what should the, the labor target be and how to achieve it. And so one of the things that we do have a conversation is with our franchises is, is how to define those targets. Because you, you, if you, to build a culture of metrics, you have to have targets. And so one of the things that the way that we guide them is what is the labor that you need to be able to provide the proper service? 
And it was, you know, I can give you a whole process, but we start with what is the minimum labor that you need? Because whether you sell a taco or not, you need a minimum number of people in the unit. And that's really the beginning. You have to have somebody who's going to be in the front doing it and somebody's going to be in the back cooking it. Minimum, or maybe somebody in the drive-thru. What is the minimum, minimum labor required to operate that business? And then based on as volume goes up, okay, what would you add next? What would you add next? So it's more driven by service, assuming zero waste. So we're looking at volumes and then define, okay, let's look at service. Let's look at, you know, assuming zero waste. Once we have that ideal schedule, what does that look like based on that revenue, based on average ticket? Because from store to store is different. Like even a franchisor could not tell somebody what is the, what should the food cost be in one store versus another without having the technology because the food cost is driven by what customers buy. If a customer, if in one store, customers buy more these chicken nuggets, which is a 40% food cost. And in another store, people buy more French fries, which is 12% food cost. Those two stores in the same brand will not have the same target of food cost. Every unit is different. So I think the same thing with labor. In one store, there might be people that have one store that has lower turnover. Therefore, people have stayed longer. Therefore, they have gotten more raises. Therefore, the average hourly rate is higher than another store in the same franchisee in the same brand that has expect uh, has high turnover for maybe poor leadership. And therefore, the average hourly rate is lower. So their labor target should be lower because of that. So, you know, it's just a lot of things that go into it. And so, uh, which is probably why franchisors don't get into it because it's, it's a whole management degree on, on on small businesses. And so we actually, what we do is we go through that and then share and talk about how you need to start from what is the minimum that you need and then go up based on volume and define what your ideal is. And then now that you have your ideal, okay, what is your acceptable waste? What, what are the things that can cause mistakes? What are the things that can vary? Is your business get you know, tremendously affected by traffic or by weather or by, you know, temperature or, or, or something. And then in that case, what is that acceptable variance between your, your, your target and your actual? And then now you give your people a target, a goal. And every unit, it has different. And here where is where technology comes in, because it will be very difficult, nearly impossible to come up with that manually. And here's where the franchisors can do. And now we're getting into other conversation. What franchisors can do is research and provide the technology, a point of sale system with a back office program that can give the franchisees the ability to come up with this information yeah. on the spot, live, yeah. right? I'd like to steer this conversation in kind of an interesting direction. So one of the things that you guys are talking about, like, and not to mention the fact that like in California, they're raising the minimum wage like every year. And they're, I think, I don't know if it passed or they're talking about, I just overheard. So I don't know if this is accurate, but they're, they're suggesting legislation where every fast food worker in California is going to make at least $22 an hour, which like is, is to me, like how in the world are we going to support these uh, businesses at that prices? I mean, obviously the food prices will probably come up. Do you see on this trend, like when do you think we're going to go to automation and I mean, because at some point it probably makes enough sense in the cost of a business when they're looking at all the franchisees to go, okay, now at $22, it used to be seven. Now it's $22 an hour. At what point should we build some robots? So the answer to that was two years ago. But before I would to tell you that I know about that law that you're talking about that was, you know, was, was, uh, I don't know if it, if actually it passed or is being proposed and it's about, I think November, they're going to vote for it. If it passes, a lot of franchisees are going to lose their business, period. A lot of them. Because if they don't even know how to define targets right now for labor, and they're, and, and they're because of that, they have eroding profitability. With just the inflation, imagine when you talk about the cost of food, a cost of goods, pricing going up. They cannot increase prices fast enough to compensate what with what they're now losing because of the cost of goods that's happening. Just the cost of goods, not even to mention that they're going to literally, I mean, to go from $15 an hour to 22, that's a 33% or no, like a 50% increase really. Yeah. On, so 15 yeah. to, yeah. It's, it, yeah, it's, a, it's almost a 15%. Yeah. I will tell you a lot of franchisees because by the way, there are 790,000 franchise units in the United States today. It's been pretty much stable for the past 15 years, 790,000. And I will tell you that 
90% of those are single unit franchisees, mom and pop people that bought one franchise to have a job. And that's what they live off. And they are not sophisticated. They don't know about all these things that I'm talking to you about. They just know they go in, they open the door and that's where the husband works and the daughters and the cousins and the nieces. And that's how their family survives. And they don't understand how to truly manage the business to maximize the profitability. They probably have half the profit right now than they had two years ago. And once that, if that in California, if that passes, I will tell you a lot of them are going to go out of business. A lot of them. And my heart goes out to them. I'm telling you, it's, it's just really painful and trying to figure out what can we, it's just really, really sad. So having said that, there are companies, especially the big brands, there are certain big brands that have been working in robotics. There are, there are right now prototypes working on a lot of fast food kitchens uh, that they are being programmed to cook fries, to cook chicken, to do a lot of the things, which is going to eliminate a lot of jobs to compensate for the increased cost of labor because while we can increase prices, not we cannot keep up with the inflation. It is impossible to keep up with the inflation. And it's going to come to a point in which we're going to come to a breaking point where that's not going to be happening anymore. And so I will tell you that you can start looking forward to seeing uh, robotic arms in the kitchens. You're going to start seeing a lot of kiosks where you're going to be doing your own food ordering, whether it's in the lobby of the unit or in the drive-thrus, and there will be nobody on the other side listening. You're going to have to be pushing buttons and eliminate that thing. And maybe a robot will come out with their hand and giving you the, the you know, it's coming. And it's already, there are already prototypes. There's already working mod models that, that are being uh, tested right now. And kiosks, really, I will tell you that I started seeing kiosks in Asia when I would go to South Korea, Singapore, it was already it was already a thing because cost, you know, the um, labor cost in those areas are pretty high. I want to get into some the philosophical questions, and and I really appreciate this because a lot of times we're interviewing real estate investors, and so this is a little bit of a different conversation. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's Elon Musk that says essentially some tops should be eliminated. In other words, like most of the time, society's happy when certain jobs are eliminated because they're so routine or monotonous, you being in the trenches working with these franchise franchisees and their staffs, what do you think the impact is on our society if 80% of the food workers are eliminated? Is that, do you think that's a positive impact in our country, in our world? Is that a devastating impact? I do not think it's a, it's a positive impact. I think it's going to be, it's going to be very harmful. And, and, and the reason is this, a lot of our first job opportunities happen in food service in that in that retail you know environment one of the things that i'm teaching my clients is that when you become a franchisee not only are you saying yes to having a brand and a support of a franchisor but you're saying yes to manage people and yes to teach these kids how to be employees a lot of these kids are learning how to be employees and productive members of society in these franchises in small businesses. And if that opportunity goes away, then where are they going to learn to be employees and being responsible and being on time and being respectful and, you know, and working, you know, uh, standing up and collaborating with other team members? Where are they going to learn that? And if it's not there, then they're going to be learning that in banks and they're going to be learning that in you know, grocery stores. I mean, I don't know. They're going to be learning in the, in, a, in the next level. And I don't know what implications that's going to happen when that happens. So I, I don't think it's a good one. I do believe that, I mean, we've been using technology for a long time to improve operations. I mean, I will tell you that Domino's Pizza, the founder, Tom Monahan, an amazing man, uh, he was, he was um, at the vanguard of, of technology. It, uh, he, he, he collaborated with uh, Middleby Marshall in creating the first conveyor oven, pizza oven that came from Domino's Pizza and the founder, you know, and just a lot of technology has been created. I mean, Domino's Pizza is much right now. I don't know if you know this, but it's as much right now a technology company as it is, as it is a pizza company. I don't know of any other company that has the technology that they have that makes them so successful. And now they're almost at 18,000 units across the United States, across the world. And it's because of technology. Technology is our friend. So, I mean, it would allow us to be more productive, do more with less. 
but I don't think it cannot take it cannot take away the personal relationships between customers and and you know and the people in the businesses. And what I think the biggest impact is what I mentioned is the fact that now these young you know men and women that are have the opportunity to learn how to be employees and what that relationship looks like uh, is going to go away and start making money early on when they have no skills and somebody's willing to teach them some skills and pay them for it so that they can get some money, be productive for themselves or for their families and, and get introduced to that before it's time for the, you know, the real world. Right. So, um, but the real world became my career. So I guess it's all the real world. So I think that it will be a, a, a tremendous negative impact. There is space for technology. There is, there, there's definitely a, you know, it'd be fun to see that happening, but to eliminate a you know significant amount of the staff, I think it would be a travesty. Yeah. Thank you so much for such a thorough response. I'm going to keep this going philosophical for a second um, because, yes, I mean, if we raise the minimum wage, that might push franchisors or franchisees rather to make a move towards automation. But also, isn't automation going to happen anyways? So, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, do you fight against the current or do you just give in to the current and see where it takes us? Because eventually this is going to happen, right? Like it's going to happen. So it's like, do we resist it or or do we give in? Uh, I love technology. I had my first laptop in 1993. I had a 12-pound IBM laptop. I mean, I was an international. I needed to get it. I needed to travel. My 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 boss wanted me to submit reports every week from whatever country I was in, and my handwriting was tried. My handwriting was terrible. I said, "I am not doing that." I bought myself a laptop and a portable printer, Hewlett Packard, by the way, and uh, love technology. I think I love technology. Kids love technology. I mean, there's technology already being used. The point of sale system. All technology, the back office, all technology, you know, headsets, all technology, screens, menu boards are now all technology, you know. So technology is there, is embraced, and I think that is obviously needs to continue to advance. I think that the challenge is if we start into aggressively looking at replacing jobs is where I think it's it's going to be the challenge. And uh, but I love technology. I think there's definitely a place for it. And something else for you to know: franchisees have no say on what happens with the brand. The franchisors are the ones that define. And, and if the franchisor says something is going to be done, then they're going to have to implement it, or they are in default. Uh, obviously, the franchisor want to do it in a way that doesn't financially hurt the franchisee. So it will take time and it will be tested and we'll see the results and franchises will embrace it because they will believe that the franchisor will have made the, the you know, the due diligence. So no, technology is embraced for sure. I think that there's great value, all the equipment. I mean, if you go behind, if you look, take a peek behind the counter and you see how much equipment is being used back there to make things faster, better, you know, you know, hotter, um, it's absolutely embraced and used every day. My only concern is if it truly starts to significantly replace people's jobs. That's really my, 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 because, you know, when I was, you know, when I left Domino's Pizza, the average, you know, sales was, you know, 800 to a million a year. Now the average Domino's Pizza is 2 million, 3 million a year in sales. So volume is going up. And a lot of that is being facilitated by the fact that we have technology that can do things better, faster, you know hotter. And so I think that's great. But if it does take away the opportunity for a young man and woman to be able to find a first-time job to learn the skills to be an employee, then I think that's where the challenge happens. Love it. So if you had billions of dollars in the bank and a hundred lifetimes of cash flow at your disposal, well, how would you structure your life? What would your purpose be? How would you define define your purpose? My purpose is to protect the American dream of business ownership through franchising. I don't have to do what I do right now. I really, truly don't have to. I found my calling. I really, truly love what I do. And, and when I have the mastermind calls with my franchisees, and because I actually lead those, I do have instructors that do the district manager training. And next year, we're going to launch a unit manager uh, leadership and uh, management uh, training. But the manage, the manager, sorry, the, this, the franchisees masterminds I lead. 
I love it. You know, seeing the the opening of the eyes, like, oh wow, that's the answer, or hearing from each other and sharing the best practices. Uh, you know, my husband asked me, you know, am I ever going to retire? The answer is no. Why should I? If I'm having a, a great time, why why should I retire? I mean, I I it's my own business. I I get to do amazing things. I create an impact in the world. So. What would I change? I would probably, I'm a, I'm a gardener too, by the way. So I probably uh, expand my gardening and, and make it prettier and have somebody help me. I would probably redecorate my house. And I don't even know if I would buy another car. But other than that, I will just do what I do. I just really, truly love it. And hire more people to be able to do it faster and better. I would probably do that. There you go. Hire more people. Scale that. Um, absolutely tremendous stuff. So um curious. Obviously, you're doing something that you're very passionate about and you love. What is your vision for the next 12 months? For the 12, well, um, great question. So we have uh, Q1 of next year, we're launching uh, the unit manager training. Uh, it's funny because we started the first five years, it was all about the franchisees. And as we were helping franchisees go into multi-unit, they started asking me, okay, I hired a district manager you asked me to. What do I do with this person? What do they do? And I'm like, well, they should be doing a district manager job. And that's when it dawned on me, well, they don't even know what that is. So we created a training program, literally was for our district, for our franchisees, uh, that, that now has opened up to the market because we have discovered that there was no district manager training out there. And so we had gone full out on that this year. Very excited about that. And then my goal was to go up and help franchisors and, you know, the new emerging franchisors. Every year, there are 300 new franchisors that file paperwork to become franchisors. Every year, 300. And every year, 300 franchisees, franchisors fail. And a lot of that happens because a lot there are companies that help these independent business owners that have a great concept with great product, great service, great image saying, Hey, I can make you a franchisor. And they pay them a lot of money. They become a franchisor. And then they say, Hey, I can sell franchises for you. And they are selling franchises for them. And then they realize the mess they got into. Not only did they pay a lot of money to get into the mess, but now they had to deal with the mess. And then the franchisees deal with the mess. And so our, my initial thought last year, I was thinking about getting into franchisor uh, systems to help them be, you know, proper, responsible, successful franchisors. They want to be that, but nobody's teaching them how to do that. Nobody's teaching them how to manage the business, how to protect the brand, how to support the franchisees, how to grow the, you know, all those things. So but um, as I was, we were planning on that for 2023, my franchisees started asking me about, okay, now that we train the district managers, do you have anything for unit managers? And I'm like, unit managers? Your franchisor trains, and it says, well, no, they give us operations, as you know, Aisha, but they don't have leadership skills. They don't have business acumen. So we are in the, in the work of developing uh, a training program for unit managers, and we're literally going to teach them focus on leadership and business acumen. And so that's we're launching that on Q1 of next year. And depending on how that goes, then I will go to franchisors on the fall of next year because I think that if I'm able to help franchisors be better and more responsible, and and achieve what they want, then I am also be helping the franchisees that buy their franchises. And so that's the goal. Next tw- next 12 months is first we- I'm going down to unit managers and then I'm going up to franchisors. Absolutely brilliant. I love what you're doing. Um, very cool. So, I mean, I, obviously anybody interested in purchasing a franchise, um, you would be a great person to reach out to. And anybody interested in perhaps um, going from a small operation to a franchisor model um, also seems like you would be a great person to reach out. Um, so how would they get in touch with you? Well, not yet. Not yet. But I mean, yeah, it does look like it's yet, on the plan. Not yet. If you want to buy a franchise, I don't sell franchises and I don't help you become a franchisor. And I do not recommend franchises either. Uh, that's somebody else does that. I just, once you already made the decision. Now, if you're smart, you want to follow me on YouTube so that you can learn how to make the better decision of what franchise to get. So, uh, Franchisors, you can contact me next year. Okay. <laughs> Not right next now. Year. I'm, you know, we're really okay. busy. But if you are a single unit franchisee that wants to grow into a multi-unit enterprise, 
give me a call. So you can find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and soon on TikTok. They're telling me I got to be on TikTok. So I guess we'll be on TikTok. Um, and uh, our website is uh, AmericanFranchiseAcademy.com. You can find us there. You can send us a message directly from there. And it always eventually gets to me uh, from my team. So it's easy to find us, schedule a call if you want to learn about our programs. And we're here again to protect the American dream of business ownership through franchising. Absolutely brilliant. I thank you for the clarification. And we'll have all that information in the show notes so people could easily access you. Obviously, people that already own a franchise. Um, Aisha, I mean, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insight into how it looks to run a franchise and to build an enterprise from it. Um, and to those of you out there chasing freedom, freedom is simply acquired one action at a time. If you do nothing else, Commit to one action and do it within the next seven days. Um, tell somebody you know so that, they can, so that they can hold you accountable. And before you know it, you too will be living a life of freedom. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 